This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of December 2017. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer at Slate, and I'm joined today by Parul Sagal of the New York Times Book Review. Hi, Parul. Hey, Katie. And by Megan O'Rourke, a writer and critic and this podcast's original founder. Hi, Megan. Hi. Today, we will talk about Emily Wilson's new translation of the Odyssey, the Homeric epic poem that is thousands of years old, that kicked off the Western canon alongside the Iliad, and that tells the story of Odysseus's difficult wandering journey home from Troy. The greatness of the Odyssey is not in dispute, but Wilson's translation has been getting a lot of attention because it is the first ever to be produced in English by a woman. Um, It also has a wonderful introduction and translator's note that hopefully we can look at if we have time. And I should also say that next month's book um, that we're discussing will be the wonderful uh, Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. I guess I wanted to start by asking you both which translations of the Odyssey you're most uh, familiar with, which you've read, um, and how you think Wilson's is different, if it is. The translations that I knew before this were the Lattimore, Richard Lattimore and the Robert Fagel's translation. And I have to say, neither I've read neither in a very long time. I did reread a few sections of them and listened to um, Ian McKellen reading oh Robert Fagel's. It's mm, <laughs> kind of its own trippy experience, yes. Um, and I had read little bits here and there of Chapman's, George Chapman's Homer, um, just sort of dipped into it. Um, you know, he's the... Uh, one who Keats famously wrote on Chapman's Homer, I think one of the very first translations into English, I think, Mm -hmm, right? I can't mm -hmm, remember. I'm probably mm -hmm. garbling that. But yeah, so to call myself familiar with them, you know, I studied them in college. Um, I actually studied Greek and I read a little bit of this in Greek um, many years ago. But uh, it's, it's been 20, it's been 20 years. So familiar might be an overstatement at this point. (laughs) Um, That's fair. I, I now am realizing that I am not familiar yeah, with yeah, yeah, the yeah. ways that but, but familiar <laughs> enough. Some are, part of my but, but familiar yeah, enough, and right? And and I grew up reading the children's Homer. Oh, and to your question of have how is this different? Oh, it's very different. Um, which we can which we can talk about. Um, it has a kind of compression and drive. Um, the sentence structure in particular is really really different than Lattimore, who has mm. a much more serpentine sentence structure, much mm. more kind of elaborated. Um, and I want to. I really want to talk about that in relationship to it as poetry at some point. But I want to give Parul time mm. to respond. Well, I'm I'm only familiar with the Fagel's version, which I read um, when I read this in high school, and I haven't really read the Odyssey since then. 
but at the same time, it is it is so familiar. It's threaded to, through so yeah. many things. It's threaded through the way I think about exile and homecoming and faithlessness, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I did read it in high school and did sort of uh, identify very violently with Odysseus. And like, um, so I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very beloved, uh, in that way, very familiar text. Um, and in terms of what I found different... Again, I'm not familiar with other versions of the text, really, other than Fagel's. But what struck me reading this um, uh, was just the celerity of the prose. Like, it's just, mm. as Megan said, it's swift. It moves. It's just um, like you're on this vessel that's taking these sharp turns. And it's just, it's kind of breathtaking. Um, I was reading this in the midst of reading all these other novels and, you know, reviewing books and thinking about books. And Nothing I was reading was moving with this kind of um, uh, sureness and kind of, you know, these these leaps that would make you gasp. And of course, you've got gods meddling and doing all these other things. But there is just um, this uh, this energy and, and quickness in the in, in the prose and which Megan is sort of like bringing it back to sentence structure. And I'd be very curious to hear mm. about that. Yeah, I can really nerd yeah. out a little bit with you guys, but let's not start there. I think we should start with some of the more, which I do want to, I do want to talk mm. about because I think it's really essential to the translation and some questions I have about the translation. But yeah, as you're saying, I mean, the gods, the, I mean, I hope we'll talk about, it. I'm sure Katie you want us to talk about reading this ancient, ancient text now. Um, you know, it was, it's, I've, I haven't, I've been reading a lot of contemporary work. I haven't read anything old in a while. And it was. What is as old also? Let's know, be fair. I know, <laughs> right? In thing, the Western right? tradition. I mean, so it was, it was really, I think one of the things I took away from this text is just how foreign it is. It's so familiar yeah. and it's so foreign. Mm-hmm. The thinking, mm-hmm. the ideas, the, the assumptions about what's possible and not possible is so actually quite foreign in, in some ways that um, bubble up in the violence. I think, totally. In but, and also like makes this act of translation so interesting, right? Because she does want to, as she says in the introduction, round out some of the characters. She does believe that translating as a woman is going to give this project a different kind of cast. But at the same time, she says, like, how do we preserve that strangeness? That what Megan is talking about, ideological strangeness, strangeness in family structures in terms of agency. Um, and that kind of gives this project, uh, I think, an especially interesting tension. But Katie, yeah. what did you think? I mean, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Um, just, I mean, to answer the question, um, in high school, we read the Fitzgerald translation and we're given the kind of quixotic tax task of um putting it to music so i have like the first the first or not the not the whole thing of course but just like the first uh few lines i have committed to memory like alongside this ridiculous melody um but then in college we read fagels um and yeah the words that i wrote down were swift plain and alien Mm -hmm. um and also sort of unpretentious and sensible Mm -hmm. um but i do think that it's interesting because the plainness and the swiftness sort of feed into the sense of it as this kind of foreign creature. And, and I think it's conscious of its status as a poem. Like it's, it's a poetic translation and that it's attracted to beauty and there is a kind of spare beauty in it. Um, but I do also feel like, you know, this is a poem about, about what is familiar and what is strange. Yeah. Um, and she writes that in the introduction. And um, you see that just on the level of the language in which it comes to us. Um, and I did find the experience of reading it to be really, really interesting in that light. So just to, to agree with what you've already said. 
Um, but just also on the swiftness, um, one thing that was really striking to me is that she, so, so she's written this in iambic pentameter. And Megan, you can, you should probably talk more about, um, the way the original Greek works. And it's in, it's in, um, as far as I understand, dactylic hexameter, which is a longer line. Um, and so the way that a lot of translations have chosen to deal with, deal with this is to just, um, just have more lines of English Mm -hmm. per every line of Greek. But what Emily Wilson has decided to do is have one line of English per line of Greek. And I think that is like one way to account for how quickly it moves. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems like a very formally difficult um, decision that she made. Yeah, no, exactly. So, and actually, um, my father, who's a an Egyptologist and a classicist, (laughs) um, and it's one of the reasons I know a little bit of Greek, um, uh, was telling me that there's an, a translation out right now by David Ferry of the Aeneid that gives itself the exact same task, which mm. is really interesting. And I hadn't, and David Ferry is a wonderful translation of Latin, um, wonderful translator of Latin, um, in many ways. Um, and he was saying it does this very interesting thing of also kind of making it feel quicker. Um, and that one of the ways that Ferry did it is to have a lot of monosyllabic words and not very, not very many, um, long words, which is something she does too. There's very few Latinate words in this in this book. Latinate words being words like destination, um, which she does use, and it leapt out at me as being quite odd in the text because I was like, "Oh, that's so not in character with the rest of the." So it 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 forces um, on the level of sentence and description a kind of celerity or quickness, which comes through in the text through this often very short uh, words. I'm looking at book four. I will take all of you down to the shore and set you in a line. Let me explain the old God's tricks. He will first count the seals and walk around among them. You know, these are monosyllables or two disyllables. Um, And the sentences are really short, um, which I didn't have time to go back and look at the Greek. My father was, I I had Cliff's Notes, a Cliff's Notes phone call with my dad. And he was like, well, the Greek can be very simple and direct. And in that sense, you know, the the short sentences um, do kind of probably mimic that. I can't remember how many short sentences. But in the Lattimore, for example, the sentences are very long in general. And the descriptions are much more... um, it kind of drawn out and there's more prepositional phrases. She, she really chooses not to use that kind of syntax. So what's the effect on you as the reader? Like that kind of so, telling, uh, those serpentine yeah. sentences. Well, in the Lattimore, mm. you know, I kind of like it. Mm-hmm. I actually kind mm-hmm. of like the serpentine sentences. Mm-hmm. It it feels to me a little bit evocative yeah. of the Greek in some way. Um, and one question I had about this, which, I, you know, I think first of all, I should say, I think this is a phenomenal translation. I think it's a coherent right. translation. I think her choices are coherent. They are, it seems to me to be a highly interpretive translation in many ways, as as all are. Um, and maybe it because she's a woman, it's more evident the interpretation to us because we've received a kind of masculine tradition of this book. Um, and we can talk about that too. But um but one question I did have about it was the music, actually. I found the music a little choppy. Um, I felt that she sacrificed, actually, it was interesting to me, Katie, that you were talking about the beauty. I actually felt like she sacrificed a lot of moments of beauty for this drive um, that I actually thought was a 
a choice I might have made if I were her to. I have another quibble, which is just as a poet, like her pentameter is a little wonky, Interesting. <laughs> which we can talk mm. about if we want to get there. But anyway, I thought – so it has this kind of musk. you know, she uses this word muscular in a very key point in the text when she's talking about Penelope's hand opening up um, – you know, the translation of the thick hand. Yeah, into, and it yeah. was, you know, this word is actually thick, and yeah. in the past it's been other words. She's like, I'm going to use muscular, and I thought that's so interesting because this text is so muscular. It's very lean. It's very yeah. modern in that way, right? So yeah. I enjoyed yeah. that. Like, yeah. it was surprising to me, and I didn't feel it was antiquated. I sometimes was craving a little more dilation, a little less constriction in the relationship, and this is where we can re- I can really nerd out later but like the relationship between line and sentence in a poem is so important and this felt like prose chopped up it didn't feel like she was really always negotiating that line sentence relationship in a way that was musically very very pleasing but i think thematically and linguistically and um kind of narratively it was very pleasing if that makes sense I don't know, Paul, yeah. but you look like you have no, thoughts. No, I look like I agree, but I think you're like teasing out stuff that I had more sort of inchoate mm-hmm. thoughts. And I kept, when I was reading this, um, so I used to write a, a column about translation and literature for the book review. And I talked to this fantastic translator once who kept talking about the fragrance mm. in original texts. And when I was reading this, I was like, I really, I, I loved um, the movement and the accessibility and the thought, like you can see all of these interventions that she's making, these political interventions mm-hmm. that she's making in the text. Mm-hmm. But I did, I did remember and I did sort of, you know, did miss the sort of feeling of somebody singing this, somebody, you know, um, just just that, you know, the, the, the sound and the sort of the meter and the sort of, um, that felt a little bit sacrificed. And then I read this, uh, Emily, I think her, 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 you say Morales, Emily Morales is a classicist, and she, and she wrote a nice piece in the TLS looking at this translation and some snatches that Daniel Mendelssohn had translated. Mm. And just, I mean, not to say one is much better than the other, but just sort of to say like, yeah, this is what you lose when you are yeah. trying to do this particular kind of translation. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, you are going to, to lose a little bit of that kind of yeah. um mysteriousness and musicality and in some the opacity sometimes a little bit also you know i'm not sure she has a poet's ear Mm -hmm. um i would say which you know and just to go to bring it back katie to your question in dactylic hexameter the lines are longer right um in iambic pentameter we have a 10 syllable line with five beats not to get too deep into any of this um in the dactylic hexameter would be longer and Lattimore, for example uses a line that is, I think, about five beats, beats being the kind of stresses, like to be or not to be, right, that thing we hear in, in Shakespeare. Um, and Lattimore, as I recall, and I'm pretty sure this is right, like he'll range from a 14-syllable to a 17-syllable line or a 12 to a 7, I don't know what his range is, but it's a long line. It has this kind of capacious mm-hmm. feel of moving across the page. Um, there's no real way to translate dactylic hexameter into English that feels natural. It's a kind of meter that would feel extremely forced to us, um, but felt much more natural in the Greek or Latin. So I think it's a very reasonable decision to do iambic pentameter because that that for many reasons in English it kind of is our speech patterns fall most closely into iambic pentameter than any other meter, um, but it's a shorter line and she makes the line feel even shorter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that feeling like even of updating not only just the 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 meter but the themes a little bit, which I'm I'm, I'm hoping we can get into it. Yeah, sorry point, to right? no, 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 please, like, poetry please. nerd yeah, fest before we even dive into the like no, no, robustness no. of the epic. But, but it just feels all of it maybe and like in some of the attention yeah. that's been focused on on um, 
on Emily Wilson is, you know, due to, I think, you know, this achievement. Then there's also her gender. And I do think that there's a way that this book is really updating and, and sort of tweezing out these themes and stories in in the Odyssey for for us now, you know, for the way that we're thinking about yeah. marriage and talking about marriage and talking about complicated men. And mm-hmm. so it does it does feel, I mean, as you say, like, and as she says too, it, it is a whole new text. Every interpretation, every yeah. sort of translation is, you know, yeah. a bringing forth of something new. Yeah. I mean, I do think just to defend the the beauty of some of these passages, it, I, I agree with you that there is sort of like a, um, an intricacy that is sometimes lost. Um, and that like there are certain, there are certain lines like, um, the descriptions of Calypso. I was just looking at the Fagel's version and it's something like, um, where is it? Calypso, uh, the bewitching nymph, the lustrous goddess held him back deep in her arching caverns, craving him for a husband. And then, um, Emily Wilson's version says, Calypso, a great goddess, had trapped him in her cave. She wanted him to be her husband. So, so I can see definitely like the, the trade-offs there. But I think that this translation also, um, strives to be odd in ways that the other translations don't. Um, so some of the descriptions maybe of the seals of the, oh, of yeah. the <laughs> smelly seals, um, smelly seals. Like that great. it's just, yeah. it's a little bit more estranging, I guess, yeah, or yeah. like alienating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that I, that peculiarity I do associate yeah. with a kind of poetic attention. And I appreciated that. Oh. Not to, not to draw yeah. us away from like the other things that we were about no, to do. And she does seem very her. visual in a way that like, I mean, I think yeah. all the places that I really alighted on with great delight are, I mean, she's like this garment that's soft as like old onion skin. Oh, I loved that. Right? Yeah, like that was a just, wonderful line. And the way that she'll very judiciously, you know, just drop one image in a, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and like, so she, she's careful and like, but it is, it's color, it's these splashes of sudden beauty. And I think that you're right. right. I think that she's after a very different effect, you know. Yes. Um, and and to be clear, I'm not saying it's, it's not good writing. Actually, I think a lot of it is extraordinarily good writing. I, I'm sort of making a very narrow point about um, the poetry in particular, I think, um, and the music of it. And as I, that's what I was trying to say, like narratively, it's coherent. Like I think many of those ways that she, you know, even the, the, the two quotes you just read, Katie, where the, her version is much sparser and starker, I'm actually quite drawn to that. It feels almost like really good novel, mm-hmm. right? So I think mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, it's not without virtue. And I want to definitely stress that like what she's doing has this qualitative effect that's hypnotizing and very powerful, narratively powerful. It, it creates a sonic. It reminds me of reading a good fiction writer, actually, more than a reading a poet uh, is really, I think, what I'm saying. Like it has a kind of voice that gets established mm-hmm. through those short sentences. It's just that sometimes in relationship to the line, I found that kind of, you know. But yeah, I want to let's, let's dive into the, the I'm so curious what you guys yeah. I mean, can I say one thematic thing? Um so much has been made of how in this book she revises crucially certain lines that have to do with Helen and Penelope, um, Helen line, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I actually thought one of the real accomplishments of the of the text to me um, was the way that Odysseus becomes so complicated. You know, she uses the word tell me of a complicated man at the beginning. She chooses the word complicated as opposed to many twisting or other things that other people have have um, 
tell me about a complicated man is her first line, uh, not of. But he is really complicated in this text. He is really enigmatic. His he's he is deheroicized in the way that we think of hero in some ways. And then she points out that the the sort of Greek notion of hero is much more complicated than our notion of it. I don't know. I just thought that was like really um, kind of bracing and kind of useful right now to be reminded of this character's wiliness. And he and Penelope are both ciphers. They just lie and lie and Mm -hmm. lie and lie. And we don't really know where the truth is. And that somehow struck me Mm -hmm. in the moment of just, you know, all the gender conversations we're having in the Me Too moment. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like two very different versions of the story that are being told to us about Penelope. And we never know what the truth really is. We never really learn about her mind. Um, anyway, so I I was just fascinated by that reading the rereading this. No, it's true. Remember, the, I think the first time we see her, she comes down with her face covered with with gauze. You know, yeah, um, yeah. And I think that I mean I do think that one of the interesting things that um, Wilson talks about in her foreword, and which Mary Beard talks about in her very good book called Women in Power, which also just came out, um, which is about how much these texts. Um, are themselves unsettled by these questions, you know, and they aren't always opining. I mean, I think this text definitely has very interesting, definite things to say about gender, but I think they're also troubled. And um, you do see um, all kinds of, you know, twistiness on the outside and on the inside. And you do see all kinds of, um, yeah, and keeping them opaque is one way of just saying, what motivates this? Is this good? Is this evil? Is this a typical narrative of heroism where you know, the bad people are so equal, easily vanquished. Um, but I do like uh, the way that this marriage is at the center of this text, even, you know, in the same way that that olive tree is at the center of the house, mm-hmm. you know, and it's mm-hmm. just kind of this mm-hmm. central, um, this central, uh, not battle, battle isn't the right word, but the central thing that needs to be reconciled. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. How about you, Katie? Did, 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 you, did you have a different understanding of Odysseus uh, in this version? I mean... I definitely agree with both of you that these characters are um, sort of, I mean, not knocked off their pedestals because the, but, but that Odysseus comes across like with a little bit, there's always a little bit of an eye roll with not just him, but with, um, I felt a lot of the male characters and also, also the female characters. But I think that like, I mean, one thing that struck me is that at the same time that some of the language of like the rhetoric of the of the male characters when they were speaking was made a little bit coarser, a little bit more mm-hmm. um like something that you would laugh at, like Menelaus. Yeah, stop eating. They're right, they're so and they come across as kind of silly sometimes. And at the same time, the women lose a little or some of the women seem to lose a little bit of their uh wiliness and become kind of affecting, affective, affectingly frank. And I'm thinking of when 
Calypso mm-hmm. says she says of Penelope and she's she's bidding goodbye to Odysseus because he has decided that he's going to leave her and she's received the divine intervention, the, the orders. And she says, OK. And then she has this kind of wistful um, aside and she says, and anyway, I know my body is better than hers is. I am taller too, which was just petty and frank mm-hmm. um, and so different from from the Fagel's translation, which is, and yet I just might claim to be nothing less than she, neither neither in face nor figure. Hardly right, is it, for mortal woman to rival a mortal goddess? And then a little bit later in the Fagel's translation, she, she says, I am all compassion. Whereas mm-hmm. in the in this translation, she says, I am not made of iron. I pity you. And it just felt, it felt like this sort of this figure of secrecy and occlusion and complexity was suddenly just given a kind of clear and bright and frank voice to say, yeah. I pity you yeah. and I feel bad and I'm jealous of Penelope. And so at the same time that these women are sort of given understandable voices, um, and sort of more human voices, the men are sort of figures of fun um, and a little bit like blustery and where they might seem grand in certain spaces. Now they feel uh, sort of buffoonish. Um, and so I did feel like there's a little bit of balancing of scales there. And I don't want to attribute too much to her gender, but but it's – it wasn't quite that everyone was uh, diminished. It, it felt like it was a little bit of affirmative action <laughs> with yeah. the genders. But I do think it's fine to ascribe a lot of it to her gender. I think it. I think yeah. she's said pretty explicitly, you know, accused other translators of having misogynist agendas, you yeah. know? So yeah. I think that she's yeah. absolutely comfortable in saying that she's trying to restore yeah. humanity and restore voice. And within, within obviously, the constraints of this time where Penelope's identity will always be as a married woman, married to Odysseus, married to somebody else, you know? But I think that right. she is she is coming for that. I think that that's, um, I mean, even to give Calypso that kind of, um, that kind of, frank sexual competitiveness and sadness you know like is is seeing her more clearly than this you know this goddess sort of opining yeah. about oh i'm not yeah. and i'm full of compassion or whatnot well i think yeah. fagel's you know right isn't he the one who took quite a lot of liberties with his text so i think a lot of purists have mm. a lot of problems with the fagel's translation because mm. there's a lot of fagels in the translation mm. um so i think it's really legitimate i think one of her things that she was really trying to do in in her book um and she does, I thought, incredibly coherently and powerfully is to look at those moments where maybe the gender of the other translators, the, their maleness, even more than her femaleness, right. um, mm. led them to certain kinds of assumptions about, or not, I shouldn't say assumptions, decisions, because the work of a translator is the work of myriad, myriad, myriad decisions, right? It's it's all interpretive. Um, so the famous line that she, you know, I think she talks about it in her introduction, or certainly a lot of the reviews talked about it where um, in the wonderful book four, the section with Helen, which is one of the moments I think a translator can do the most work around gender in this text, you know, um, Telemachus encounters Helen. um, And in the Fagel's translation, I think her section, Helen has a speech that ends shameless whore that I was or something like that, right? It's a translation of dog-faced, I think. Dog-faced or dog-eyed, right? It's one of the two. And she has a very, you know, the the end of her, of um, Emily Wilson's section is, you know, the face that hounded you know, a thousand ships or something mm-hmm. like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that turning the face that hounded mm-hmm. such a beautiful translation mm-hmm. of that phrase. And I think 
potentially much more accurate. Actually. Oh, yeah. They made my face the cause that hounded them, she writes. I see. But I have to push back on that yeah. just because I do like the image of Helen yeah. sitting there and just being like, you know, yeah. shameless bitch that I was, you know, caused mm-hmm. all this mess. <laughs> I do. I think that there's mm-hmm. something also um, knowing and arch and I don't know, you know, um, but yeah, that was yeah. that's I think of all the, the like her little interventions. That's the only one where I was just like, oh, I kind of liked uh Kind of liked my dog face. Yeah, <laughs> dog face. Although, I mean, that is such a delightful exchange where she's yeah. Where yeah. she's talking up what a friend she was to the Greeks and how yeah. glad she was yeah. to be home. And then Menelaus says, "Oh, what I remember is you wandering around the Trojan horse, beseeching us in the voices of all of our wives back home." Just this sort of marital. Um, competitive banter. It, I mean, it, it just is very, very much a portrait of an unhappy marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, another kind of uh, fragile marriage to be compared to Penelope and Odysseus's, which I think still sort of has its beautiful and simple and aspirational quality in this translation. Like I, I found it incredibly moving when Again, and I had forgotten about this the first, from the first time I read the poem, but, you know, they, they have sex finally when they're reunited. And then they just tell each other stories mm-hmm. in bed mm-hmm. because they're such – that they're like-minded. And that was another, um, like, important passage that she brought out is, is the, the sort of uh, – the like-mindedness, uh, the similarities between Odysseus, Odysseus and Penelope. Um, and, you know, he's been – sort of traveling through lands and meeting others. Um, and we should talk about sort of the way the text both um, promotes and rejects like mm-hmm. certain colonial uh, beliefs uh, on the part of the Greeks in the Bronze Age and, and maybe on the part of translate translators in like the 19th century afterwards. But if I can hop but, in you know, quickly yeah. also just to say like so, – but. but Directly before that moment of them going to bed in that beautiful bed in the olive tree and telling stories, before he goes to see Penelope, right, he tells his son, make sure she hasn't taken anything from the house, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that the wife will always be thinking of her next husband. So, I mean, like, so that exists, that moment of sympathy, that moment of like, of of love between them exists. But it also exists with this idea of like, she's a faithless woman. She's yeah. going to take valuables from this yeah. house. Right. So make sure she has not told her, her slave women to collect things from the house. Make right. sure she's not taking the jewelry. Keep her hands off everything. Like right. it's a like, very interesting right. and complicated. Mm. Um, that whole rec- – so, you know, it's really common mm. in these texts for there to be a recognition scene, yeah. right, as it were. Um, and in this text – and the recognition scene is where everything comes right, yeah. right? And the the two who have been estranged, you know – find each other. And interestingly, and you see this in Shakespeare too, it's not enough for people to see one another and recognize their faces. There's always has to be some other kind of proof of I am the person. I mean, not always, but yeah, often the there's this kind of like, this, right, yeah. Yeah. Um, which fascinates me. Like, did they have more face blindness than we do? <laughs> or is it just that they were apart? We can't imagine what it was like to be apart for yeah. 20 years. I mean, I think that's, that's so the reality. Right? I they think just, just like right. setting just text, tests for each other. Right. But, you know, this recognition scene is a very fraught one yeah. because she doesn't recognize him. Like he yeah. says to her, I am I am he, I am Odysseus you've been pining for. We've heard yeah. so many, you know, stories of her grief soaked bed and she's like, I don't know, maybe. You know, it's just very kind well, of Well, it's like dramatically a too, right? Well, for both of them. And dramatically yeah. it's it's very withheld and it kind of comes about piece by piece. And as as you're yeah. saying, Pearl, it's a so and I think that's where the core of this text is. I think the core of this text is all around these 
complexities that never get like kind of fully resolved in some way are not as so there's that beautiful storytelling and exchanging stories and then he's also like I'm gonna also have to leave again um yeah there's this there's yeah. an anxiety I yeah. think at the end of this text it's so I drawn agree. out yeah. um yeah and just to me really a powerful part of it's I think one reason it still resonates with us is that it's actually not very tidy. No, it's, no. It's, it's incredibly uncomfortable. Um, and to go back to your thing when you were saying about how this resonates in this moment of Me Too, um, and, and and as Wilson says, like, so in her foreword, she says, like, there's, and you're going to correct my pronunciation, Megan, but it's this idea of Xenia, this idea that yeah. like, this text is about mm-hmm. outsiders and strangers. Yeah. But as we're talking about, it's also the strangeness and intimates, you know, can you, what is this test of knowledge? Do I know you? Where have you been? Do you know this? You know, so it's, this is, I think, gives it its, its, um, its little charge as well, you know? Absolutely. Um, And, you know, I think one thing when I was saying, I think she really brings out Odysseus's complexity. There's a couple lines where she talks about, and I can't remember exactly the line. We can try to look for it, but it's after he's telling the story of how his shipmates dying, his crew dying. And she says he failed them or he failed yeah. to keep he failed to keep them safe, which is a much um, balder version of the Greek than I think Lattimore or Fagels has, where they're kind of like, you know, maybe protecting Odysseus from his own failure a little bit more. And I think yeah. that in this text, I was really to go back to what you were just saying about the tricks, like I was really struck by how often he makes terrible decisions that like kill yeah. everybody just out of his own curiosity and then kind of misrepresents things. So even when they're leaving Calypso and she says, you know, you're going to pass the sirens and you're going to hear the songs and they're going to make you want to like stay and you'll become this lump of, you know, flesh rotting on the body, uh, on the bones because you'll never leave. So you have to put, you know, wax in your ears. And then she's like, if you must hear them. Because she knows him. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, have the men bind you to the mass. And then when he's leaving, he tells the men, she said I alone should listen to them, which is actually not what she said, right? right? And right. so I thought this text really kind of exposes those moments where Odysseus yeah. is like, this is not a good idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. And he destroys yeah. a lot. Right? It does. It does. He destroys right. a lot in the, in the And that happens in the Cyclops too, right? Where right. he says, you know, we could have just left the cave, but I wanted to see if he would give us some gifts, which <laughs> did not turn out well for us. Exactly. So, um, but that's a I, devastating but, section, actually. But you do also yeah. hear these – I mean, it, it is ridiculous, but I don't know why – you also can understand why he was beloved of the gods, you oh, yeah. know, like it's oh, yeah. because of this element of, of like, <laughs> why not? Where does this lead? You yeah, know, let's, yeah. so, I mean, there's, no, he's that, he's absolutely, that's what, that is his charm, yeah. right? I mean, that's why he's Poe Dameron he's, in Star Wars. Yeah. He's like the hot headed yeah. fly. Oh, he's, yeah. there's this great scene where he's like the hot headed fly boy and he yeah. keeps disobeying Princess Leia and the other like wise woman elder. And at the end of the scene where he's just been completely, irrepressible but also insufferable and you know you are quite angry with him as a viewer they turn to each other and they say we like him yeah and <laughs> that's, yeah no that's yeah. who he is he's he's that we yeah. know this male male character but i think that's exactly right i think that so again i think was it like mary beard talks about how this is the story of like odysseus but it's also the story of like his son achieving manhood and mm. it is a and i think the way that wilson does show us that this is a story mainly about men and about masculinity and manhood and there's that fantastic scene at the end where Laertes and Odysseus and the son are in the in the orchard and he's like and Laertes says oh this is just delicious to hear my son and grandson argue about who's tuffer <laughs> yeah, and yeah. like, that she's enough distance on the yeah. scene where you yeah. can also see that yeah. Yeah. you know 
yeah, like that. This is it is charming. It is it is you know it's, it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's why I loved reading this translation so much. Is not. I mean, it's like these threads are already there in the poem, but it's just nice to sort of hear that subversiveness mm-hmm. and know that there was another consciousness there. Yeah. Like it's not like the male value system in this poem, which is very deeply entrenched. Like it's not like that was supplanted in any way. But running alongside it, there is this kind of subversive energy and you sort of you know that like flickering around the edges is this like other intelligence that is laughing at it and poking at it and appreciating it but is not sort of identical with it and i i don't know i just felt like emily wilson there as the translator beside me and just kind of loved it um because there is so much ambivalence in the poem um and I think that she was sort of attuned to certain balances over over um, others, and I don't, I don't know. That's a vague point. Yeah. But. No, no. I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And um, I was really thinking, reading this poem, I was trying to do something impossible, which was that I was trying to imagine, because I think she restores to it because it feels modern to us. I think we have a fresh purchase on how it's a series of stories mm-hmm. that might have been told for entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks a lot in the introduction about how it's stitched together by different bards singing over time, and then we don't really know how it got stitched together. If there was one person who kind of edited it into a text um, later on or if multiple bards you know, did this. But I was really trying to imagine, and I wonder what you have to say about this, like why this story? It's a very odd It's an odd epic on the face of it. It's not like the Iliad. It's not like the Aeneid, which are these grand stories of nations falling and being founded and grandeur and heroism in a very different way. And this is a much stranger, stranger text. And I was really trying to think, like, what was the – why did the Greeks love to listen to these stories? And I I have some answers, but – yeah, and one thought I had is that it's it is about it's about it's about damage and pleasure, mm-hmm. um, and that it mm-hmm. doesn't have these kind of neat morals at the end, and that that's actually part of the kind of profundity of it. But you know, a lot of this is about the damage of the Trojan War, right? And this kind of very there's a lot of it is about Agamemnon's death and Clytemnestra. Yeah. So there's this through line of what women, the what the wives who were left behind are capable of doing to you after the fact. Um, and obviously the Helen scene, which we touched on, is really, I think, quite crucial to the text. Um, but there's a lot about Agamemnon and Clytemnestra who, you know, kills Agamemnon upon his return. And the, even when there's that beautiful one set piece of the Book of the Dead where he goes, to, where uh, Odysseus goes to see the dead in Hades, a lot of that section is about Agamemnon. Um, anyway, it's just there's so much damage in this book, but it's offset by just that tricksy pleasure that we were talking about, that you were talking about, Parle, that's so charming. I think it would otherwise feel quite actually melancholy and lugubrious. But, you know, yeah. his wily, tricksy, like endless storytelling. And the other thing I just was struck by was how much the structure of this book Book, I had forgotten that you learn about all his adventures as a story that he tells in the middle of the book. And that really illuminated something for me on this, you know, on rereading it, which was just this is a book about storytelling. Um, it's a book about the stories we tell ourselves and what, you know, meaning they have um, among, you know, a poem about that. And it's set up as an endless series of stories to be told. Um, they're lies and they're true and they're lies and they're true. Anyway, so yeah, but I'm just curious what. 
you know, if you had that experience of kind of what is the source pleasure of this or source fascination, and if what I'm saying makes any sense. Can I say like a, a sort of related um, yeah. epiphany or not epiphany, but like something that struck me about it um, is just what a fundamentally conservative poem it is in mm. that it – I mean for all the, the ways that it kind of wobbles um, our, you know, sacred, sacred icons or whatever, um, it's basically about the desire to restore things to the way that they were before the disruption of the Trojan War. Yeah, and absolutely. when you talk about sort of – I didn't realize this before, but like sort of how unsatisfying and piecemeal all the recognition scenes are. Like it's not this like swoop of reunification and the anxiety is dispelled forever and you get a fairy tale ending. Like it's because the fundamental dream of the book is like let's erase all the things that happened. Let's make it as though I never left and none of this changed and I'm the eternally youthful and glorious king that I always was and, you know, Helen never ran off and these people didn't die. And, you know, it, it's kind of like you can't you can't change the past and this is a man who's seeking to restore the past. And, of course, the, the ending is not going to be a purely satisfying thing because you can't ever sort of get back. Um, and so there, there is like a really sad strain to that too. Totally. Yeah, and it's yeah. also he's leaving Calypso, right? He's leaving the offer yeah. to be immortal and he's going to go back and he's going to die and he's yeah. going to um, go back to all kinds of uncertainty. I mean, there's like that famous formulation that Guy Davenport had that the mm -hmm. Iliad is a poem about force and the Odyssey is a poem about the mind over force. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of dovetails a little bit with what Megan was saying and certainly with how I how I read it, you know, and I think some of the most moving passages in the Odyssey for me are – in the conversations between father and son and and Odysseus keeps saying to him, be calm, you know? Mm -hmm. And he says, there are these little, like, these short little things, but you can see that, um, you know, this man who has suffered for 20 years and been shunted from one place to another, he sort of has these, these few lines where he says, you know, um, you know, when Zeus shines upon you and you have all of these things, you accept it, you accept it, but your mind has to be as still and accepting, you know, when it comes to misfortune too. I'm paraphrasing horribly. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but there is something there that I, I felt like this is, this is a book about, um, you know, how to, how to weather these adversities, right? Like how to, how to stay the course over 20 years. Um, uh, to some degree. I mean, I do think that your point is really, really smart, Katie, and it is also about, um, it is conservative. And there's also the pleasure of dominance. It's not just to come back to how mm. things were, but it's to dominate and take them again. You know, and I'm thinking yeah. about that last scene where Odysseus wants to keep on killing and the gods are like, that's enough. That's <laughs> yeah. enough. But he yeah. wants to go on. Yeah. He's not finished. He's full of rage. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. there is that. Um, and I think that this book made very clear for me the sort of relish he takes in it. The scenes of violence and fighting in this book are fantastic. Um I mean, she does introduce like a few anachronisms. For example, it is his stripping off his clothes and saying, playtime is over. Not my favorite moment. <laughs> know. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> but there is that sense of his own, um, yeah, the desire to dominate, the desire to reconquer, the desire to humiliate. Um, felt strong to me. Yeah. You know, and Katie, listening to what you're saying, you know, the, the way that certainly I was taught the Odyssey is, you know, that if the Iliad was a poem of, um, of force, as you're saying, you know, of war, 
um, and fame and glory, which I think that the formulation that you often hear studying them in, in Greek is like kleos or fame and glory. And the, the Odyssey is a poem of nostos or homecoming. That's the word that gets used. And we get the word nostalgia from nostos. Um, and absolutely, I mean, as you say, there is a kind of conservatism and the, the sadness, the tragedy is that it can't go back. And there's a really poignant line in this translation near the end where Telemachus and, you know, speaking of these recognition scenes that are, you know, partially uh, rehabilitative, but not fully. Telemachus sees his father and he's actually one of the first to try to string the bow, which is the task that Penelope has given to the suitors to say, um, you know, if you can do this, you will you can marry me. Um, it's it's Odysseus's bow, and none of them could do it. But Telemachus is the first to try, and he just fails miserably, right? So it's sort of an interesting, like, it's, he's not there yet. And then not long after that, he has a line, and I'm not going to remember, where he says something about how, yeah, my father left. He didn't he didn't care enough for me. It's not that. It's like, he, it, he, I'm, do you guys remember I know the, this I know line? The, I know the place. It's not he didn't care enough for me. I've been looking for it, and I can't find it. But it's something like it didn't, you know— I didn't keep him, something like that. And so the wound is still there. The whole the whole youth growing up without a father, right, is still Yeah, he gets all the bitterest asides, the little doubts about paternity, the old thing. I know, I know. In fact, I kept hearing, partly it's the, uh, you know, um, fact that Star Wars is out right now, but I kept hearing some of his, she, she really identifies the kind of, adolescent plaintive tone in his voice and I kept hearing Luke Skywalker saying but I was going to go to whatever to get power converters <laughs> like there was a little bit of that in Telemachus here and there yeah anyway. did you um react differently to uh the sort of tales of Odysseus going through the lotus eaters and the and Circe and Skill and Cryptus there, there's this sort of journey home part and then there is the he is home and he is sort of restoring his rightful place um, section. And I wonder if if uh, there was one that was more sort of attractive to either of you. I think for me, I mean, I feel like a lot of people, Penelope is just the most interesting mm. character. And I think it's because of her opacity, because of her... Um, the odd strategies she's devised to survive. So, I mean, all those sections had incredible heat and excitement for me. Um, mm. I mean, it's also just the two strands coming together, right? That we've been seeing Penelope at home and Odysseus on the sea. So, yeah, I think for me, um, that was a night, but I, I also think that I, I hadn't really realized, I mean, this, the point Megan was making, how harsh the homecoming was, um, yeah. or how harsh he is. Like, there's that fantastic scene, which, you know, everybody knows and loves that, that only his old dog knows him. Mm -hmm. I'd yeah. forgotten that Argos recognizes him and then drops Dies. dead. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I had forgotten. Exactly. Then there's that other that lovely scene of that. I think her name is like Euryclea or something. Um, yeah, the, nurse. the old nurse, and she's yeah, like, "Oh, but yeah. you, you know, I, um, you know, I nursed you. I know that this is you. This is the same scar." And what does he do? He grabs her by the throat and he says, "Are yes, you trying to destroy I'd me?" Forgotten right. about that. Too. I had, I'd yeah. forgotten. That. Had I just wiped this yeah. out, or or, or, or yeah. did those other texts sort of soften those moments? I was. You know, and I'm glad they're there. I'm glad, like, it's, but at the same time, I was really unsettled that I didn't, I, I had sort of forgotten over it. I think she does a great job making many of the ancillary characters mm -hmm. of the slaves feel much more yeah. particularized, mm -hmm. or certainly maybe it's being older and more mature and not being a 20 year old and like trying to finish it for class. I don't know, but that, many of those roles, um, that scene in particular, just really. And I thought that's what's so fascinating about this text. Like, he, he kind of ramps up into cruelty at the end, right? And she also says to him, I'll help you figure out which women are 
you know, were loyal and which weren't. He's like, I'll do it myself. And then later they have, you know, he's killed all the suitors and he's like, okay, so you tell me now which one were good or not. So he keeps, I mean, there's a lot of instability and like narratively, like he'll say he's going to do one thing and then something else happens, which I think has to be intentional. Um, But to your question, I mean, yes, to me, like obviously, you know, so much of the charge of the poem is the encounter, the homecoming, though I also I find it painfully drawn out. And she did a beautiful job formally, I thought, of ratcheting up the speed there with these kind of shorter verse paragraphs. And just I thought formally she did a great job of kind of making those fight scenes work really well. Um, But I guess, you know, to go back to something I said, just in terms of this other material, I was struck by how painful the sense of loss was for me in those sections. I didn't remember that aspect of it. I remembered the adventure. I remembered the fear of the Cyclops, the siren, all these figures who have become kind of iconic in our film literature and otherwise. But, you know, I had not taken in how much sense of having aged and lost, just been responsible for lives lost, been present during lives being lost. I, I just, that really hit me this time. Um, and as did the other thing that hit me was just the structure of story, you know, how crucial storytelling is. And mm. the fact that I thought it, you know, it was so interesting to me that I had remembered it just being an account of his adventures, but actually you start as he's left Calypso. And we start with Telemachus. Actually, we don't start with with Odysseus. And then we get to him leaving Calypso and then he gets the fate to not, he meets Nausicaa and the Phaeacians and then he tells us all as a flashback. The other fascinating thing we haven't talked about is how much they all lie about who they are. Like how much yeah. how much drama there is about like they all like feast together. And this goes back to Xenia and guest yeah. culture and hospitality. But they'll be with each other for 24 hours and then finally they're like, so tell us who you are. And he'll be like, well, yeah. Not yet. I'm from Crete. <laughs> I'm from Crete. And then he's like, well, no, actually, here's my story. But yeah. It's such a, but I, you know, I mean, again, like I think it reminds me of, you know, my, I have older relatives who have lots and lots of different names. And I think mm-hmm. it does, there's something about coming from countries or civilizations that have been conquered, reconquered, conquered mm-hmm. again. There's a certain kind mm-hmm. of shiftiness and twistiness that mm-hmm. settles in your soul somewhere, which sense. is just, because again, like, it, it, you know, you see it playing out. What is your name? What is your real name? You know, is that right. your name? Like the, right. the whole thing of names, the whole thing of appearances, right. the whole thing of, is your face partially covered? Are you veiling? Like all right. of this stuff, I agree. So interesting. I have a question. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is again, to go to your point, Megan, about um, just the amount of longing and and, and mourning in the book is mourning for home is mourning for all of that which mm-hmm. struck you. So there's this point when he's repeatedly will get the same adjective that I, I find fascinating and lovely, and I don't know what it means. Um, when he's staring out across the sea and weeping, and it's always the fruitless sea. Oh yeah. What is what? Why fruitless sea? Is it because the sea fails to divide him from from what he loves? Like it's it's not enough. Like that distance means nothing. But that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, isn't it? Like a contrast between the fruited plant, like the the, the sea oh, is not the land. Like the land is the is where he wants to huh. be because that's his home, and it's marked by its fertility and and all of the sort of family the ties that are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, so there's one other poems where they talk about fish filled, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I think it must be. It would be interesting to look at the Greek. I um, I was wondering too if it's that whatever adventures, whatever feats he accomplishes, whatever fruits of his labor, as it were, um, it's not what he wants. He wants to be, as Mm. you're saying, Katie, on land. I don't know. That's a really good question. There were a couple moments It's also really interesting. 
We get, can I just, yeah, read, this, can I just read this stanza out? Because it just it goes to show like yeah, how much of this, how much of those pages he was sitting there and sobbing, and I don't remember any of it. But Hermes did not find Odysseus since he was sitting by the shore as usual, sobbing in grief and pain. His heart was breaking. In tears, he stared across the fruitless sea. This happens again and again and again, you know? And I think that, yeah, I mean, I always just preferred to remember Circe and, you know, sexy Calypso and just edited that out. The fruitless sea. I'm trying to just do a little search. I see it in other translations. Um, I mean, one thing, too, while you're looking, it seems like the ocean is kind of this place of monstrous femaleness maybe mm-hmm. like you get a lot of monsters who are female like skill and charybdis and then the sirens and and even the sort of temptresses cersei and calypso and maybe one way to sort of indicate their unnatural uh danger is to sort of um highlight that they are not doing the usual female good thing which is produce children they they produce all kinds of other horrible consequences um, so they're monstrous women, mm. and the sea is their is their space. Mm. You know what's interesting though, like Calypso and Circe this time just seemed not so bad to me, <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe that's a translation though. Maybe she's made them more. Yeah, you know, um, they. I really was like, oh, yes, oh, ladies. she's kept him, but like they're quite reasonable <laughs> when he's like, I have to go. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I was just Calypso's just like I've fed and clothed you, and I was like, yes, show some gratitude. <laughs> I mean, on the you know, I feel a little bit as though it's inevitable that the fact that she's a woman and that there's a slight feminist angle is going to be foregrounded. But I actually think that's a facet of the work she's doing rather than the entirety of the work she's doing. Because actually the women in this, although they're crucial, there's so much about men. Um, And I think the work she's doing is to sort of just shift a little bit how these received epithets and descriptive passages come to us and to really look at the Greek in a kind of complicated, holistic way and try to think about what it, what work the poem is doing overall. And I guess that's why I was sort of struck by how much she's able to, and, you know, we always, you know, Odysseus always seemed to me like the wily trickster who's really complicated. And, you know, I never didn't have that notion of him. He was never an easy hero. Um, But there's something about just these tiny adjustments in Mm -hmm. syntax and vocabulary, like failed, as opposed to he didn't manage to or whatever, you know, the other translations were. I'm paraphrasing terribly. But, you know, that does just there's a kind of intervention there um, that I found that I think was like, for me, the real work overall. And I think that's what Wilson would say, right? I think she's given like interviews about talking about her work as explicitly feminist. And I think it she means i'm guessing is that you know it does and being a woman has made her attentive of power in particular ways right and not only just being a woman she's the she's the daughter so we should probably refer to that white yeah. mason did this big profile of her in the times magazine earlier this year you know and she was the daughter of a female academic who set up the first crash at the college right. you know so she's somebody that is inter- yeah. Yeah, in Somerville, and she's interested in thinking about and talking about material conditions that produce art that support the artist right so it, it's an interesting thing because odysseus everybody remembers is this as this male hero alone on the seas right but she's somebody who's attentive and and looking at everybody who gets erased and is pushed out of the frame. Um, I mean, one of the sort of things that reviewers and and people are talking about is this one um, slight recasting uh, when Odysseus comes back, right? And he asks, um, he wants to see which of the the slaves in the house have slept with the men, the suitors for Penelope's hand. And previously, they're described as whores. 
Mm-hmm. And she just looks at the language and she says, they're not, that's not the word that's right. used. The word that's used is, mm-hmm. is female, right. you know? And yeah. in fact, they weren't really even women. They were girls. Right. So she just recasts that, that the girls are strung up, that the girl right. slaves are strung. And it's, it is such a, it's such a powerful, right. um, and right, right. uh, moment, I think, right. um, and she, she also uses the word slaves, where mm-hmm. I think other times it was servants. And so I think the point maids, being, too, maids has been used. Maids, yeah, right? Yeah, where it's maidens. like, well, they're slaves, yeah. they're young. So obviously yeah. there is some, there's a complexity to that scene, but it's, yeah. She was also the daughter of A.N. Wilson, mm-hmm. the, the biographer um, and, and writer. I, yeah, I absolutely agree. I just think she's she's really trying to just dismantle some of the armature of... Yeah. The kind of ways that, of course, genderedness of, and I want to point out, it's not just her gender, it's yeah. the genderedness of the other translators has led them to mm-hmm. make certain it's kinds of decisions. It's with this. Like, you yeah. really do right. feel yeah. her, yeah. you know, scrubbing stuff yes. off these yeah. words and off these yeah. sentences. And I do think, I mean, sometimes I do feel like a very politically progressive slant on some of these scenes yeah. that sometimes yeah. I feel work better than others. But, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I think that it a lot is being made of her gender, and I wish more would be made of the gender right, exactly. of the original translators. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think that that's right, and it's exactly. a really good point, Megan. <laughs> um, it kind of reminds me of the brouhaha surrounding cat person, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not mm-hmm. so much that, oh, this so completely and naturalistically inhabits the perspective of a woman, although it does that well, but it's that we're so used to these sort of provocative New Yorker short stories transpire or like being from the perspective of Robert, you know, of yeah. John Updike or whoever mm-hmm. it is. And so just the fact that it is this other character who is just foregrounded a little bit, even though it's sympathetic to both, mm-hmm. but maybe she gets her due alongside the male character. And that makes a real difference. And it's enough to start a real conversation mm-hmm. and get people interested. Mm-hmm. I also think that that work, when done well, and I agree, Paul, like some scenes it felt maybe a little overdone, or but mm-hmm. when done well, as I think it is in the scene with the, the slave girls being strung up in this very ornate hanging that's really quite awful, um, it just actually brings other elements of the story into focus, right? So it, it brings into focus the whole trajectory of the end, which is much more complicated and, as we've been saying, fraught um, than a simpler recognition scene full of satisfactions. And I think the violence is part of that, right? I mean, I, I there's just a lot of moments of violence in this text, but the violence at the end is pretty extraordinary. No, and I think it goes back to the women too, because it's like who threatens to sell out these other women? It's the nurse. Does Penelope protect them? Right. No, you right. know? So it becomes right. a more complicated idea of who is vulnerable in this situation, who has act, how do we define power? Power is a shifting element in this. So I agree. I think it brings everything yeah. into this more interesting relief. Um, were there any particular passages that uh, you guys uh, particularly wanted to talk about? I mean, they're just, there's just stuff I admire. I mean, I don't know if there's stuff that I can really like dig into and dissect, but it did, really did remind me um, when I first read this and I loved, and I loved it. It, it was for, um, it's kind of what this book and this text knows about suffering. And there's this one description um, when the, uh, Father and son are reunited and they cry. And the sound that she, the, the sort of metaphor is so precise. And she says, they cried. They both felt deep desire for lamentation and wailed with cries as shrill as birds, like eagles or vultures when the hunters have deprived them of fledglings who have not yet learned to fly. And that's just... That was a great passage. That's just... Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just took the top of my head off, you know? Like, that's just such a specific sound. That's, that's such a specific... Um, 
thing to know. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever wrote this, whatever group yes. of people have written this, mm-hmm. whatever person, <laughs> to have listened to that sound of eagles deprived of their fledglings. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was just um, that was a really. They're just such moments of 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 beauty and 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 um, just that kind of keen, crazy observation from like you know that just yeah incredible moving. She does a lot of things where she gets a kind of directness that is quite. Um, that that was a moment that really struck me. I also when the he encounters his mother in Hades and she says, you know, the reason I met my fate and died, it's the goddess did not shoot me in my home aiming with gentle arrows, nor did sickness suck all the strength out from my limbs with long and cruel wasting. No, it was missing you, Odysseus, my mm. sunshine, your sharp mind and your kind heart. That took sweet life from me. It's so and simple, now we weep, now. you know. But it's just <laughs> devastating, and it's like it's it feels amazing. like a mother's yeah. language, and it it's not over. It's just you know, but that's it's it. So it's direct. not overwritten. It's not overwritten, and I think that has so much virtue in what she's able to yeah. kind of clear away and just get that clarity yeah. of that I think is in the original text um, to us. It's yeah. just that was for me the real the real accomplishment. And the really the moments I loved were moments she did that. There's another yeah. moment where she kind of. Odysseus is talking about um, wanting to get home, and he says, the worst things humans suffer is homelessness. We must endure this life because of desperate hunger. We endure as migrants with no home. You know, and just these moments where she's able to really encapsulate the themes of the text um, very naturally and kind of directly mm. and, and with pain. I mean, there's a lot we haven't touched on about what they say about women all mm. the time. And mm. like, you know, mm. some moment when they're like, don't give your wife too much. Nope. And, you know, if, but don't tell her too much. She's actually okay. So you can <laughs> tell she, her something. Is, she won't kill you. <laughs> right. She's it's not going to kill she's you. She's not going to kill you. But still, don't tell her everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but, and one tiny other thing is that I really kind of got a kick out of some of the sort of like fresher, more modern language. Just seeing, seeing like Athena's eyes lit up. I don't yeah. know. There was yeah. something yeah. that suddenly she was so yeah. animated yeah. in that simple way. I mean, I do think that I would rather not see Demeter described as having cornrows. But yeah, um, that was a little, little yeah. moments like that, that didn't work. But by and large, just seeing them, um, yeah, their eyes light up, like things like that just felt really just fresh and fun. Yeah. And the the other thing, because we've been talking about simplicity and clarity in, in her expression, it's like there, this is not a moral clarity by any means. No, no, like yeah. this yeah. is not mm. a just universe. And I think one thing that really leapt out at me as I reread the poem was there are things that happen that are tremendously tragic and unfair. Like the the Phaeacians who give oh, Odysseus yeah. safe passage home and then on the way back because they have done what, you know, the gods have decided should be so, uh, still Poseidon is angry and he turns their ship to stone and he moves a mountain in front of the port and it becomes a landlocked place and they are no longer like these magical people with these wonderful ships that can intuit the way to go without ever being rowed like what a beautiful metaphor too for a poem that it's was just like a, a craft that that yeah. knows where to go without being steered I, I mean it was just that that loss was very painful like the idea that they couldn't help travelers go home anymore um, and just there, there was so much, and and the gods and the goddesses obviously are um, not really adhering to any kind of greater um, ethics than themselves. 
Um, and I think when I read the poem for the first time as a high schooler, I sort of believed in Zeus as the arbiter of justice and the eagle as this like glorious force for good and all this stuff. And this time, I think the impression, and this is in keeping with what you both were pulling out about sort of the, the elegy and the sadness and the pain that she's so attuned to is like, this is a very sad, it's a, it's a mournful poem. Um, in a lot of ways, and some of that has to do with the fundamental injustice of the universe that they're in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the gods are petty, you know, vengeful, you know, capricious, lusting. lusting. They're no, they're no better than humans. And I think you know that's that's something that should come through in any translation of the Iliad or Odyssey. Is that should be something that I think that's part of its alienness mm-hmm. to us, and that's part of I think you really hit on it when you talked about there isn't a kind of moral clarity. There's not the kinds of tidy lessons that we. Um, come to expect from a lot of Christian-based literature, for example, mm-hmm. that comes later, that, that trades on a lot of these kinds of set pieces that that they've that the Renaissance learned from the Odyssey and the Iliad. But it's so different, right? It's it's so wildly not uh, yeah. I know. Of, I mean in a certain way, like it, it does seem alien, but to me I think there's a real <laughs> but it also feels very like it feels like um it just feels like a very good immigrant story to me, right? Yeah. Like, so there's yeah. a whole lot in it that feels very similar to like odd stories that I remember hearing about my parents moving around. You know, it's this idea that you're in a place that's absolutely alien to you, and you're dependent on mm. kindness of other people, or not even just the kindness that that they won't that they won't harm you. Right. You know, there's this wonderful moment when I think um, I'm forgetting where Odysseus has landed up, but the gods send a nice mist so he can't hear. The slurs of people against him, oh, yeah. and I was just like, "Oh, where were you in 1981?" You know, right. like it's right. just right. like so. Right. Those moments, like, yeah, I mean, not to like haul it into our time, say, but like there, there are these like resonances as we're talking about why this text endures, 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 and is loved by so many different kinds of people. Like, there is that. Like, it just, it really, like, like nothing else gets to that feeling of. Um, yeah, I'm in a place where like the laws don't make any sense. Definitely, you know, then that's that's so powerful. Yeah. On that note, should we go around and, and say whether we would recommend this translation? Yeah. <laughs> if it isn't abundantly clear. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> Parul, what about you? Oh, yeah. So, so I mean, it's, it's, there's so much to think about. I mean, I feel like we talked and talked today, but we could really just keep going. It's just, yeah, it's, um, yeah, so much to think about and just also so beautiful and just, I, I, yeah, wholeheartedly. In my in my stuttering, I'm, I'm completely awed and stuttering, and you know, wildly praising. Read it immediately, Megan. Yes, a hundred percent. I think it's a, <laughs> I think it's a tremendous accomplishment. I think it has this kind of resonance and coherence that's very fresh and very different. Um, you know, whatever questions I have about it are the questions of respect one pays to any translation, but. Um, I think it's I think it's a real accomplishment. It's a really fascinating and important addition to the translations we have, really essential to our understanding of the of the poem. Yeah. Um and just to round out our our unanimous recommendation, I loved it. Um and I love talking to you guys about it. Yeah. So thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> thank Thanks, you. It was illuminating. Thanks for listening to the Audio Book Club. Next month's book will be Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. If you like the show, you should check out Slate's spoiler special. They aren't reviews, but post-views, audio critiques meant to be played after you've seen the film. 
Slate movie critic Dana Stevens leads discussions of twist endings, plot holes, and other secrets you won't read in the reviews. It's the kind of discussion you have with friends as you're leaving the theater. And from time to time, Slate TV critic Willa Paskin will convene a panel of critics to discuss a season of television. Check out Slate's spoiler special wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, which helps other people discover the show. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Andy Bowers is Slate's Chief Content Officer, and Afim Shapiro provided engineering assistance, and Dan Bloom also provided engineering assistance. Um, A wealth of amazing producer talent here helping us get the show off the ground. This podcast was produced and edited by Benjamin Fresh. Round of applause. Um, For Parul Segal and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next month.